Today we're starting chapter 22 of the Confession of Faith of Religious Worship in the Sabbath Day. You know, every year when uh, Reformation Day comes around, I start getting super pumped and I start getting super Protestant-y and, and just like, I, I don't use Catholic, it's just only Papist and Romanist and all that stuff, which is kind of normal anyway. But anyway, there are, however, certain doctrines, rightly so, that we associate with the Reformation. Um, probably the two biggest ones are justification by grace alone through faith alone, sola fide, sola gratia, and maybe after that, sola scriptura. Um, those are kind of the two biggest. In fact, I've heard some people say, um, I think they say the, the material cause, to use some Aristotelian causation, the material cause of the Reformation is justification by faith alone, but the formal cause is uh, sola scriptura. You know, one is kind of pushing the other. Um, those are kind of the two, two big ones. There are other things, like ecclesiology is another big one. Um, but perhaps one which we tend to forget, or maybe not consider as much, but which was a huge battle in the Reformation, was the doctrine of worship. Not only was Roman Catholicism full of all kinds of human inventions uh, in terms of doctrine, such as purgatory, the papacy, all kinds of crazy things, but Roman worship, too, was replete with human inventions, and I would say just outright idolatry, although <laughs> we'll look at some distinctions that Romans make um, in that. All that to say, then, the Reformers were very, very interested not just in reclaiming um, uh, a biblical doctrine of soteriology, nor were they simply interested um, in reclaiming um, a biblical ecclesiology, but especially worship. Um, you know, worship, worship had such a, it was such a driving force in the Reformation. One of my professors said something I'll never forget. He said, especially in France, the Reformation was sung into the hearts of people as they sang songs no longer in Latin, but as they sang the Psalms in their native tongue of French or German. The Reformation was sung into the hearts of people. I, I really like that. I, I never really heard that before. Um, but it's very true. It was very much about a biblical understanding of worship. Well, today, as I said, we're beginning chapter 22. We're going to begin with paragraph 1. Um, some of this we've already seen during a recent Sunday sermon, namely the regulative principle of worship. Um, but we will now dive in a little bit deeper, because as I said, even on that sermon, there's that, the regulative principle is fairly simple in principle. Um, there are a lot of things that go into it in terms of how it's applied, um, and we will look at all of that. But what chapter 22 is essentially about is biblical worship. How are we to worship? Well, let's go ahead and begin. If you have your confession of faith, open up to chapter 22, paragraph 1. Chapter 22, paragraph 1. says, the light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doth good unto all, 
and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. But the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan, under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Well, here, this chapter uh, kicks off this, I'm sorry, this paragraph starts with this, uh, this chapter starts with this paragraph on worship, um, and it begins perhaps maybe not exactly how you might have expected it to start, namely with a discussion of the light of nature and really general revelation. Um, What's going on here? This paragraph is establishing two things. First, all mankind is obligated to offer worship to God. No man is exempt from this, not even the unbeliever. Worship, therefore, is not something merely Christians are commanded to do, but creatures. Creatures are commanded to worship the God that made them. This is seen in several ways. First, no one can say that they did not know there was a God to be worshipped. No one can say they didn't get the memo. The paragraph begins, the light of nature shows that there is a God. Now, the light of nature is a very broad concept. Um, it encompasses a whole lot of things which we can't, can't get in today. Um, what this is talking about here, though, um, and we'll see, we'll see some of the other definitions later on in, in this, not other definitions, but it's just a very broad category. Um, what this is talking about here is the evidence of God's existence, particularly in the works of creation and providence. Creation and providence. Chapter 1, paragraph 1 of the Confession starts off by saying, the light of nature, oh, it doesn't start off, a little bit after, the light of nature and the works of creation and providence. So the design, the purpose that is visible in creation, right? You look at a human anatomy, there's a bone structure, there's, there's a heart, there are veins, there's a brain so much design and purpose going into it. That's creation. Then there's providence, which is that yearly God sends us rain. The sun, um, the, the sun's harmful rays are protected by our, at, or we're protected from them by our atmosphere. In other words, God only, doesn't only just create, he sustains. And this too is, is visible evidence um, of God's existence. What this means then as the confession says in paragraph 1 of chapter 1, the light of nature and the works of creation and providence do so far manifest the goodness, wisdom, and power of God as to leave men inexcusable. Again, no one can look at the world around them, can ponder themselves, no one can even think thoughts um, at all without seeing evidence of God's existence all around them. And this, therefore, means they are not excused from the duty of worship. Um, Furthermore, as the the confession argues, it is not merely clear that God exists, right? 
But we see something of his character as well. His character, certain aspects of it, are manifest and plain through the works of creation. Again, it says, the light of nature shows that there is a God who hath a lordship and sovereignty over all, is just. How is the justice of God seen in creation? I'd say we see it with the law written on the heart. As soon as the little child has a, a toy stolen from them, they, they cry out, injustice. Maybe they don't say injustice. They say, man, that, that's my toy, right? Um, or maybe a child lies, and they go away, and they have such a guilty conscience inside of them. That's because of the law written on the heart, which points to the fact that there is a standard of justice. There is right and wrong. And you don't need the Bible to tell you that. It's in creation. It's part of who we are um, as, as rational creatures. So God is just, but he's also good. And he doth good unto all. His, his goodness is seen. I remember one time I was having dinner with an atheist. He was actually an apostate. Um, and I had been reaching out to him, and he became a very obnoxious, rabid apostate. Um, but he said something to me like, you think there's proof of God's existence? And I was like, yeah, like everywhere. And he kind of looked at me uh, like aghast that I would say something so boldly. And he says, how is there proof of God's existence? <laughs> and maybe this is perhaps not the most effective apologetic argument that has ever been put forth in the history of the church. But we were getting uh, uh, Asian food and he had orange chicken. And I said, Look at the fact that you have delicious orange chicken in front of you. The fact that there are good things in this world, like orange chicken, that there are good fruits, that there are beautiful things in creation, all points to a good creator, um, a, a marvelous creator. And uh, he looked at me with a blank stare like, that's the stupidest thing I've ever heard. But we do see evidence that God is good and doth good to all. Um, our, our world is just full of this. Paul says this to the Greeks when he's evangelizing, that God has sent you rains and given you harvest and given you all kinds of good things, right? That's a good God who does that. This too, therefore, is seen in the works of providence and creation. And so we are surrounded by proof, not only of a God, but of a good God and a just God as well. Even pagans, though their minds are darkened by sin, yet even they still have some glimmers of moral knowledge and a concept that God is to be worshipped. Well, all of this proof, therefore, should lead mankind not just to know that there is a good and just God, but to praise and worship and give thanks to that good and just God. Again, it continues, the light of nature shows that there is a God who hath lordship and sovereignty over all, is just, good, and doth good unto all, and is therefore to be feared, loved, praised, called upon, trusted in, and served with all the heart and all the soul and with all the might. All, all the might. Notice uh, it's quoting from Deuteronomy 6.5 there, it's essentially quoting the, the greatest commandment according to Christ. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your might, right? That, that is something that is the duty of all creatures. 
Well, again, what this is establishing is that worship is not just a Christian thing. It is rather something um, of all creatures towards their creator. It is true we worship God not merely as creator, but also as redeemer. The unbeliever cannot call him that. Um, they, They can if they repent and believe. I mean, the offer is open. But as of yet, he is merely their creator. But nevertheless, even as creator, he is owed his due worship. Let me ask you something then. Should unbelievers pray to God? Yes? Some people are saying yes. Who's saying? Anyone say no? It's okay. Brenda, you're saying no? Step boldly forth. Sin boldly, as Luther said. Why do you say no, Brenda? Just, just curious. Okay. Yeah. Right. Okay. So, on the one hand, we, I think we're kind of, there's an agreement, there's an obligation there, but not in, in a way that is not right, we would say, right? In, in some ways, Jason? What right do the wicked have to praise thy name? Yeah. 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 I think you guys are all right, and I think we can kind of make a couple helpful distinctions that'll help us to say, on the one hand, unbelievers have a duty to worship God, and yet if you were to see people going to a Buddhist temple, you should say, stop committing idolatry and don't go in there and do what you're about to do, right? Both of those things are, are true at the same time. Um, As a side note, as a Baptist, I want to bring this in here. Um, I would say unbelievers have a duty to pray to God. They do. Um, Now, it's not accepted by God, and we'll we'll see why in a second. But there is a duty. Again, as the confession says, by merely seeing that there is a God, therefore it is evident that he should be praised, he should be feared, called upon, trusted in. That's, That's prayer, right? They ought to. There is a duty there um, that goes to all. Now, as a side note, as a Baptist going to a Presbyterian, largely Presbyterian seminary, um, I used to hear this all the time from my beloved Pado Baptist brothers and sisters. They'd say, Well, Baptists can't teach their kids the Lord's Prayer, and they can't tell their kids to pray because they're not covenant children. They're not little Christians, right? They would, and they'd say that very sincerely, like, Do you not teach your children to pray, right? And, and even more, well, they're not in the covenant, how can they pray? Um, I would, I would also always say, well, first of all, <laughs> let's think through this thoroughly. If, you're, if your child had a little friend visit and, and they were to say, do you guys pray? Like should, all, like, should I pray too? I don't think they'd be like, no, you're not a covenant child. I think they'd be like, yes, all people are called to, to worship God, um, So I think it's a little bit of special pleading. Um, But we can say, even though our children at this time are not believers, they nevertheless have a duty to pray to God. It's part of worshiping their creator. And whether you're a covenant child or not, the only covenant children are those 
Anyway, well, you know what I mean. Um, um, but there is nevertheless a duty, and so we can teach our children to pray the Lord's Prayer. Now, at that point, they're not believers. They haven't put their faith in God. He's not yet their father, and yet we are teaching them. On the one hand, we're preparing them when they do place their faith in Christ, and God does become their father. Um, but on the other hand, as mere creatures, they are called to worship, pray, and praise God. And so we can tell them that. But again, the, the reason for this is that there is an obligation and a duty and a, to pray and to worship to all, whether you have faith or not yet. Now, can unbelievers op- offer acceptable worship to God? No. Can they offer acceptable prayers in that sense that will be heard by God in a covenantal redeeming sense? As you said, Brenton, no. That's, that's still true. Nevertheless, there is a duty there. You might think, okay, <laughs> explain to me how that works. Well, we see a parallel with this in chapter 16 on the confession. Turn with me there real quick. Chapter 16, paragraph 7 of good works. Chapter 16, paragraph 7. Okay? It says, Works done by unregenerate men, although for the matter of them, they may be things which God commands. Um, A father may work hard to provide for his family. Okay? That is something that God has commanded. Um... Someone may sacrificially be kind to to someone else, right? All things which God commands. Although for the matter of them, they may be things which God commands, and of good use both to themselves and others, yet because they proceed not from a heart purified by faith, remember Paul says, uh, whatever does not proceed from faith is sin, nor are done in a right manner according to the word, nor to a right end, the glory of God. Perhaps that man um, is providing and working hard for his family, but maybe he's doing it out of uh, a sense of vanity, of wanting to appear like a good man. Maybe he's doing it out of spite because his father was not a good man. It's not for the right end, right? Um, Therefore, it says, they are therefore sinful and cannot please God nor make a man meet or fitting to receive grace from God, okay? So there's no one, unbelievers, there's no unregenerate who do actual good works. There, there's, there's an appearance of them. There's kind of a certain direction in which God has commanded it, but not for the purposes and not according to the manner which it is to be done, and therefore it's sin. So that, that man who's providing for his family, though, though that is a, a thing which God has commanded, if he does it out of the vanity of his heart, he's sinning as he does it, right? That's, that's how we can say that. And yet, this is, this is such an astonishing statement, and yet, it says, their neglect of them, the unregenerate's neglect of good works is more sinful and displeasing to God. So for, the, for that unregenerate man to hear what I just said and go, well, fine, then I'm, not gonna, I'm just not going to provide anyway because I can't do nothing but sin. Okay, well, now you're acting even more sinfully. Um, yes, your, your works are not true good works, but 
there is such a thing as being even more sinful, and you are now doing that as well, okay? There's a sense, then, in which that, that applies um, to, to worship as well. Um, we can say if, if prayer, um, if, if any other form of worship does not proceed from a heart of faith, if, it does not, if it's not done according to the manner commanded in God's Word or for the right purpose, it is therefore sinful. Yet, the neglect of those things is even more sinful, right? And so that's where we can say on the one hand, yeah, that the Lord doesn't, doesn't hear unbelievers um, in, the, in the sense that they are not even approaching Him in the right way. They're doing so at the heart of sin, um, and he's not their covenantal God. He may become so if they repent and put faith in him, um, but in that state, he's under no obligation covenantally to listen to them. Um, in fact, they are under his wrath. They are his enemies and estranged from God. Nevertheless, to neglect those things, to neglect what they owe their, their creator is even more sinful, okay? So that's how we can kind of see these, these two things um, side by side. So that's why I would even say, um, you know, the unregenerate unbelievers, you see them just going around about their lives on Sunday, um, even though they're, they're not, they should be in, in church somewhere. And it's not an excuse, well, I'm not, I'm not a Christian. It's like, yeah, well, you still have a duty to worship God, um, and you should seek Him and seek repentance, but you should still be worshiping God according to the manner, um, because He is at least your Creator. Um, Okay, that's the first thing that paragraph one is, is establishing there. Uh, it's a universal duty of all men, Christian or otherwise, to worship, praise, and pray to God. Any questions before we move on? Any questions? Okay. Next, paragraph one continues, but the acceptable way, notice that, the acceptable way of worshiping the true God is instituted by himself and so limited by his own revealed will that he may not be worshipped according to the imagination and devices of men, nor the suggestions of Satan under any visible representations or any other way not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Notice again the connection uh, which the Reform often make between the second commandment and the regulative principle of worship. You see that there? Uh, under any visible representations, second commandment, or any other way not prescribed. They're kind of drawing out the principle from the second commandment there. What this is, is getting at um, is basically the regulative principle of worship. But if you want to go even more broadly than that, it's the idea that although all men and women have a duty to worship God, nevertheless, worship is not man's idea, but but God's. It's his idea. He therefore defines and regulates his own worship. As it says, it is instituted by himself. So this is where we say, um, do, so does, does the Hindu man um, have an obligation, obligation to worship his creator? Yes. Is he sinning when he, when he worships Vishnu or whatever as he does it? Absolutely. And that's wicked, right? Um, that's what this is getting at. The only acceptable way is limited by God. We see this all throughout the Bible, uh, that God is not a fan of religion per se. 
He receives true religion, but any deviation from that is utterly abhorrent to God. Um, I remember I worked with a guy uh, once, and he found out I was a Christian, and he was pretty gay. Um, and so I imagine he like immediately thought of something to say because he knows I'm a Christian. He says, my grandmother used to say in Spanish, Dios es muy grande. God is very big, right? God is a big tent. He has room in his heart for all the Hindus and Muslims out there and all that. Um, and uh, yes, God is very big. <laughs> He's immense. He's immeasurable. What we also read of God is he abhors all worship that is not true worship which he has instituted. And we see this even in the fact that when his people, Israelites, worship him, they're worshiping the true God. If they don't do it in the right manner, it's still abhorrent to him. How much more for those who twist who God is and worship some other false representation? Even more, we, we see just, just how big that is. Therefore, the struggle and the conflict um, is not so much between religion and atheism so often. Rather, it's true religion and false. I, I forget who said this. The, the problem with people so often with the world is not that they're becoming more and more irreligious, but that they're very, very religious in all kinds of ways that aren't healthy. I think of Paul in Athens. Men of Athens, I perceive you are very religious. It's also very problematic, right? True religion alone is what suffices. Um, it's interesting. We see in many ways... Um, you know, this was the problem in Israel. If you had asked an ancient Israelite who, who worshipped false gods, right, alongside Yahweh, if you, would, I, if you would ask them about that, I don't think they would say, well, I'm not very religious, I'm spiritual. They were very religious in Israel. In fact, there's kind of a sense in which they, in their wickedness, doubled down on the worshipping of all kinds of things and added to their worship even more than the nations around them. We see this, for example, in Ezekiel 5. Thus says the Lord, this is Jerusalem. I have set her in the center of the nations which, with countries all around her, and she has rebelled against my rules by doing wickedness more than the nations and against my statutes more than the countries all around her. For they have rejected my rules and have not walked in my statutes. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, because you are more turbulent than the nations that are all around you, and have not walked in my statute, statutes or obeyed my rules, and have not even acted according to the rules of the nations that are all around you. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, even I am against you, and I will execute judgments in your midst in the sight of the nations. Um, if religion in general is what God was after, he never would have sent them into exile. But that's not what he's after. He's after true religion instituted by himself. Worship is God's idea, not man's. Um, again, I said in my sermon a few weeks ago, really the most important phrase, I think, um, which really kind of summarizes, in many ways we could say this summarizes the chapter, uh, chapter 22 as a whole, but especially this paragraph is the very last phrase of the second half of paragraph one. It says, or any other way, not prescribed in the Holy Scriptures. Um, prescribed there is commanded. 
Um, it's, it's enjoined. It has to be commanded in Holy Scripture. If not, it is, it is forbidden, okay? In many ways, that's kind of the heart of, of chapter 2, uh, chapter 22. Any questions before we move on? No? Okay. Well, let's now look then uh, at what exactly is the worship which God commands. Um, having established that principle, chapter 22 now goes on to, to describe what true religion is, what true worship is, what it looks like, and what it does not look like. Look at paragraph 2 with me today. I'll try to make it as far as we can through this. We won't finish paragraph 2 today, but we'll try. Paragraph 2. Religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to Him alone, not to angels, saints, or any other creatures. And since the fall, not without a mediator, nor in the mediation of any other but Christ alone. There are really two parts to this paragraph. First, you have the object of true worship. The object of true worship. What, or rather, who is to be worshipped. Second, you have the mediator or of true worship, or we might say um, how we approach the object of true worship, right, via, via the mediator. First, as far as the object of true worship, it says that religious worship is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and to Him alone. Now, perhaps you've wondered about this before. Um, there are some passages which indicate that we are in particular to praise the Father as God, right? Often the title of God um, is peculiarly ascribed to the Father, while the title Lord is not exclusively, but often uh, ascribed to, to Jesus Christ. For example, Romans 15, 5 through 6, may the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another in accord with Christ Jesus that you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. See that? 1 Corinthians 8, 5 through 6. For although there may be, uh, for although there may be so-called gods in heaven or on earth, as indeed there are many gods and many lords, yet for us there is one God, the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist, and one Lord, Jesus Christ, through whom are all things and through whom we exist. You can see there, even in the last part, there's clearly some deity uh, ascribed to Christ in the fact that uh, through whom are all things and through whom we exist, when he said of the Father, from whom are all things and for whom we exist. Nevertheless, we see this all throughout Scripture. Um, we can say on the one hand from this, there is kind of a, a certain direction of Scripture. Um, there's kind of a certain motion in, in one direction that generally points to the Father, okay? Not to the exclusion of the other two members of the Trinity, um, since all three are God, but there is a general direction to Him often ascribed. In fact, it's interesting, if you look at the confession, it highlights the oneness of God here after discussing the three. Notice it says, 
religious worship is to be is to be given to God the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, and not to them alone, to Him alone. Who's the Him? The one God, right? The one God who exists in three persons, Father, Son, and Spirit, right? So we, we do acknowledge the threeness, and the threeness is even an important part of how we worship. We worship in the power of the Spirit through the mediation of Christ to the Father, right? Um, and yet, if we were to step back, properly speaking, we worship all three. Um, therefore, it's not wrong to pray to the Son, it's not wrong to pray to the Father, or even to the Holy Spirit, though generally, we would say the general pattern of prayer um, is, as Christ taught us, our Father who art in heaven, right? Um, so, uh, it's really the one God in three that we worship. If you want a really good book on this, uh, it's so helpful in noticing these little peculiarities to each of the persons um, is, is John Owen's book, Communion with God. It's really good. It's kind of heavy slogging at times. It's John Owen. Uh, John Owen never met, a, a, you know, he never met a comma he didn't like. Like, he just keeps on going, and he, like, whoo, he just adds all these things, and you're like, what are those? You ever see those ads where they're like, simplify your writing? We're like, John Owen, this is a great program you can use for all your books. We'll simplify your writing. Um, all, so that being said, there's times when you're, you're kind of slogging through page after page, and you're like, where is he going with this? I don't even remember where we started, where, what's happening right now. And then you get to the end, and he's like, boom, gospel gems on you, and you're like, Oh, I see what you're saying now. Um, so it is worth it, and he he really highlights there there are peculiar things to each person, um, not exclusive, but maybe some things are particularly ascribed to one, um, and that's just a really good book I, I would recommend to you. But it kind of just helps you think through the three in one aspect in prayer and worship and communion with God. Okay. Basically, then we worship our one God the three in one. That is the true object of true worship. Now, on the one hand, that might seem simple enough. Um, it might sound uncontroversial that Christians should worship their God alone, right? It's like, duh. Sadly, in the history of the church, um, there have been many shortcuts taken, uh, fine-tooth distinctions which justify things, which they might say, well, this is not worship. Um, it looks like worship, sounds like worship, does everything that worship does, but it's not worship, right? That's not what worship is. Um, and so very much the Reformation was pushing back on that and really reclaiming, we, we are worshiping so much more than God alone. We are committing so much idolatry in the church now. Um, that is part of what the Reformation pushed back against, and you can see this particularly in the next phrase of paragraph two. Not to angels, saints, or any other creatures. Not to angels, saints, or any other creatures. For Rome, then, even now still, but especially back then, there was a whole cottage industry of devotion and relics and all this stuff devoted to particularly the saints, but I think also angels as well. It was a great source, 
not only uh, of practically more or less devolving um, into idolatry, especially among the ignorant, but it was also just a great source of abuses back then as well. There's like a, a black market, uh, uh, literally, of like holy relics. Um, there's like, you know, there's like knockoff, like Louis Vuittons. There's like, this is like, oh, is this really the cross of Christ? Like, I don't know. Oh, no, here's, here's how you tell the fake cross of Christ. Um, there were so many abuses. Um, and ironically, because they still haven't changed, those abuses are still around today, though we don't know about them as much. For example, in 2017, the Vatican reissued a, a whole bunch of kind of new rules or maybe just stating them again concerning relics because there are so many abuses even today. Many were being sold on eBay. <laughs> For example, a Wall Street Journal article noted that in 2017, a search on eBay turned up 1,940 items under the category of saints' relics, including an ampule supposedly containing some of the Virgin Mary's breast milk with an asking price of $3,000. And you know what, brothers and sisters? We laugh about that. But somewhere out there, some poor little Catholic grandma thinks that's going to help her, and she's going to fork over $3,000. And I think if we were to show that article to John Calvin or any of the reformers, they would have go, yeah, it was the same in our day. It doesn't change. This is the, the practice itself lends itself to these kinds of abuses and stuff like that. That kind of stuff was rampant, rampant in the Middle Ages. In fact, there was arguments of who had the true this or that. We have the true bones of saint so-and-so. You don't over there. You guys are liars. And they're like, no, we have the, saint, the true bones of saint so-and-so. It's interesting that we read quotes from Calvin, for example, like the human heart is an idol factory. And we tend to think, um, I'm not necessarily criticizing this, it's just perhaps a limitation of where we are in history. We tend to immediately think of that in terms of just kind of postmodern idols, wealth, vanity, all kinds of possessions and all that stuff. I think when Calvin and Luther said things like that, it was from a very real context in which that was not entirely metaphorical language. <laughs> Calvin grew up in France. I'm sure you could go, there was, you know, not too far, the abbey of Saint so-and-so where the bones of Saint so-and-so were housed, and they're, they're, housed, they're housed in what are called reliquaries, which are often some kind of these, these cases, um, often made of precious metal, just to kind of really add to the, add to the effect of idolatry. Um, and so Calvin can say the human heart is an idol factory, and he doesn't just mean wealth or fame. He means look all around. All, all you have to do, even among the faithful, the ignorant, um, to, to kind of, there's this impetus to find things and, and bow down to them and be devoted to them. Um, I think that, that was, there was very much more literalness, I think, when they said things like that. Now, um, Rome argues uh, that relics and saints and angels are not to be worshipped as God. They are to be venerated and adored. And they make a distinction between worship as latria, which comes from the Greek word latreia, which means the worship or service of God. For example, Romans 12.1, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, 
to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Worship there is the Greek word latreia. Rome argues, they will argue to your face. In fact, they'll say, we are offended that you accuse us of worshiping Mary. We only give latreia to God, okay? However, they argue that dulia or reverence or honor can be given to saints and angels. And in fact, they have two categories. There's normal dulia, which you give to like the saints who did pretty good stuff. And then there's, this is what it's called, hyperdulia, hyper honor, which you give, um, as far as I know, for sure Mary, maybe like the angel Gabriel or other people like that. Um, but Mary for sure gets, gets hyperdulia, others just get dulia. On a side note, I, I find it like hilarious that they chose the Greek word dulia as opposed to latreia, as though this like makes their argument, um, because the word dulia comes from the Greek word dulea, which is almost universally negative in scripture. It refers to bondage and slavery that we've been freed from. Um, and so it's like, yeah, no, I don't want to offer bondage to things that aren't God. Like, like really, you couldn't have picked a better word than like the slavery word? Like, oh, Okay. Um, however, that being said, even though they make this distinction, the reformers argued that, that no, you're just, you're asking for so much trouble. It's asking for trouble in so many ways. First, it is just a matter of time until the ignorant among you, and, and back then, think of that, there were truly people, like, the saints were like a real-life version of, like, the, the Marvel superheroes, um, it's not just like Iron Man, but he's a real person you can actually pray to, right? And if you don't know hardly anything of the gospel because you don't speak Latin, you're not educated, um, are you really going to be distinguishing in your mind between Latria and Dulia? No. So often, especially the ignorant, are going to be led astray into this sin. Um, we see in, in history, and even in Scripture, there's just this kind of like, there's this tendency towards, towards idolatry. We see it all over the place. Um, and by promoting the veneration of saints and angels and their relics, you're just asking for trouble, even though you make these fine-toothed distinctions. Um, uh, I, think, uh, I think it's interesting. I'm reminded of Aaron after he made the golden calf. If you had asked Aaron in that moment if he was committing idolatry, he would have said no. Why? Well, because he says we're worshiping Yahweh. Tomorrow is a feast to Yahweh. We haven't left our God. We're just worshiping him slightly differently while he's actually in the midst of just heinous idolatry. There's this tendency of the human heart to be like, let me just sin in this way, but call it not sin, and, and that makes it okay. Um, I think an interesting story which, which shows this is in 2 Kings chapter 18. We're told about the religious reforms of King Hezekiah. It says, He removed the high places and broke the pillars and cut down the Asherah, and he broke in pieces the bronze servant that Moses had made. For until those days, the people of Israel had made offerings to it. It was called Nehushtan. So they kept this thing. I mean, hey, it was the famous thing, right? Somewhere along the way, they start praying to it. 
And maybe they're praying to God through it. Maybe they justify it. Well, we're really offering these to God because this is what Moses used, right? Um, and yet, that is broken in pieces because it, it is not God. It's not how he's to be represented, and God has not commanded it. It really is just a hop, skip, and a jump from venerating something to making offerings to it. Um, and that's what the Reformers are getting at. Furthermore, as we shall see later as we go through this chapter, not today, even amongst those who make the distinction between Latria and Dulia, yet they still pray to saints, and, and I imagine maybe the angels as well, though I'm only really familiar with them praying to saints, they view Mary and the saints, as, especially Mary, as having a role in redemption. Mary is a co-redemptrix, or she is a mediatrix. Um, that's part of the second part of, of what paragraph two is getting at, only the mediation of Christ alone. It's really saying not Mary, right? Um, furthermore, uh, they speak of there's a treasury of merit that the church has, and it's not just the merits of Christ. It's the merits of the saints as well through their works of supererogation, which you can receive, right? Um, okay, so it's not just the merits of Christ alone now, but the merits of Mary and the saints so let me get this clear. You don't worship Mary, but you pray to her, which is an act of worship. Presumably, you give thanks to her when she answers your prayers. You trust in her. You, you look to her for redemption, which, as we all know, redemption belongs to the Lord, or salvation belongs to the Lord. And so at a certain point, how are you not worshiping her? And even if you're making this fine-tooth distinction, I think even, even for those, you know, they'll, I've read something online by this, like, Catholic website. They're like, we are, we are offended when people say that we worship Mary. We do not offer Latreia, we offer Dulia. Yeah, but you do so many of the acts of what worship is. You pray, you trust in, you reverence and fear them. Remember we, all those things in paragraph one? that God exists and is therefore da-da-da-da-da-da-da. You're like doing all those things to Mary and the saints, but you're just calling it Dulia and saying it's not Latria. And we're just saying, no, we, we don't buy that distinction. You're flirting with fire. We're, we're not even going to go there with you. Um, now, on the one hand, uh, let's say you're talking to a Catholic, you know, and they might say to you, well, hey, I've seen Protestants wear their shirt with John Calvin on it, right? Um, don't you guys have a Reformation Day after all when you talk about good Luther? Don't Protestants like their martyrs? Fox's Book of Martyrs? Yeah, there's a lot of Protestant martyrology. So, so you guys are just doing what, what we do. No, we don't pray to them. We don't trust in them. We don't give thanks to them. And they have no part in our redemption like you ascribe to them. No, it's not the same thing, right? So, so we can appreciate saints that have gone before. We can even, like, respect and honor them. Um, I would not say adore. I would not, well, definitely not venerate. There's an appreciation, right? But as fellow servants of God, not attributing anything of worship to him, um, there's a really cool work. We're running out of time, so I'll just read this in closing. If you want to read a good work, I could get it to you. I, I couldn't print it out to everyone. Um, 
a work against relics and all that stuff and gives you really good arguments against it. Um, there is a Dutch Reformed theologian named Johannes Polyander. Johannes Polyander. He has a really good work against relics. Um, he says, Surely we find in the Bible that the holy patriarchs and their children have buried honorably their dead according to the ordinance of the Lord. Thou art dust, and to dust thou shalt return. But we read not in any place that they have torn their bodies and transported them piecemeal after their death, which is like literally true. Some people had like the arm of St. Simeon that he held baby Jesus in. You're like, did someone like rip off his arm? Like, what's, what's happening here? He says, they, have placed, they, they nowhere placed their bones in sundry places, shown their garments to the verbal, verbal pe- vulgar people with command to worship them, and promise that in calling upon them they shall be heard. Neither do we read that God hath commanded us by his ancient prophets to go on pilgrimage to those parts where their inheritors hath carried them, to offer up there unto them burning holy candles, to touch, salute, kiss their bones with great devotion. Much less do we read in it that God hath prescribed them to solemnize the memory of their relics, by certain convocations of the people and publications of solemn feasts, nor yet to load the churches and altars with them, nor to carry them upon their necks and shoulders, nor to walk up and down with them in procession to the intent to move everyone to reverence them with confidence to obtain mercy from God and his saints by worshiping them. So not only is this just like, it's, it's really a bad idea, even though you're making all these fine-toothed distinctions, um, most critically, you don't see this in the Bible anywhere. If worshiping the saints were something that the church has always done, why, why don't people really, you know, why didn't they venerate those older people back then? If anything, we see them kind of worshiping Moses and doing stuff like that, and then they get kind of rebuked for, for looking more to Moses and to Abraham than into the God of Abraham in Moses and all those kinds of things. Um, all right, so we will, we will end there. We worship God alone, and we are very careful not to give acts of worship, whether prayer, praise, or devotion, to any other than God. Um, that's it for this part of paragraph two. We'll look at the second part, um, particularly that Christ alone is the only mediator. Any questions?